Tonight's reading is taken from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Well, good evening. Uh, let me have my belated uh, welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. It's lovely to see you. Uh, lovely to see many of you back after Christmas and uh, back after a week at work. Um, you see, 8% of the UK, no, yes, 8% of the UK workforce was off on Tuesday. Flu? Hmm. <laughs> but uh, in many ways, it's good to get back to uh, routines. Let me uh, lead us in prayer. And then we'll begin. Our loving Heavenly Father, for those of us who know you, we, we do indeed have a great song to sing of your goodness, a great song of confidence that we can trust in your goodness, have full assurance of that. And you know in our hearts we often forget it. We forget how good you are and what we have to sing of. So would you remind us again this evening so that this week we would sing, speak, in our hearts, of the confidence we have in your goodness towards us. We ask it so that glory may go to you. Amen. Now, quite often in uh, January time, we take a break from our normal practice of working our way through books of the Bible and uh, explaining them to look at something topically. And uh, we're doing that again uh, this month of January. Uh, quite often take something that is perhaps a presenting issue or or seems a good thing to talk about in the congregational life. And uh, so this month we're looking at the idea of contentment. Uh, Biblically, what does it mean to be content? What does contentment look like? Now, what? why this against a million other topics or things that we could look at? Well, a number of little things have have fed into this, I think. Uh, One will be back in November when we um, uh, were looking at the Song of Songs. I think contentment came up as quite an issue there. How can I be content if I'm single, how can I be content if I'm married to him? Um, <laughs> contentment, it became, it's, it's an issue. Uh, many of the questions asked uh, were along those lines of contentment. But a second reason would be that it seems to me and one or two others that in, in this congregation, the life here, some of the fundamental elements of Christian living that feed into contentment have slipped. So some basic Christian living, time with God, praying to him as a father who is listening, 
hearing him speak on a regular basis, daily, dare I say it, just some of the basic fundamentals of Christian living that will encourage us to be content. And they're, they're faded a little bit, perhaps taken for granted, perhaps we were a little jaded uh, in their 40s, 50s, perhaps never adopted those habits uh, in their 20s. That seemed another good reason to do it. Uh, and the third, and this is slightly subjective, uh, this as well, but the sense in which culturally, culturally, People's expectations today are ridiculous. <laughs> that uh, as a generation, if you can say such a thing, as a generation, people are growing up just expecting to have an excellent job and very good health and excellent relationships and uh, uh, a very high-quality partner for life. And people just expect in sort of every arena of life that life should go well and are outraged if it doesn't deeply disappointed or just lacking contentment. I started to read one book over uh, Christmas. It's called Jilted Generation. I don't think I was uh, bothered to read that. It's quite interesting. So a book written by two uh, economists, uh, uh, late 20s, early 30s. And they basically say in this book, if you're born after 1979, you're stuffed in the UK. So that will apply to some here. And um, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> And as one born before that. <laughs> the, um, not at all. But the basic thesis of this book, and uh, statistically it's interesting and worth reading, but the basic thesis is that if you're born after 1979, well, your parents have spent it all. The baby boomer generation, uh, they've done very well for themselves, and they've spent all of the national income, and they've spent your future inheritance and so these 20-somethings are basically very angry in this book indeed about the fact that their parents have spent it all and they're, in their view, they're jilted, they're left with nothing, they'll be known as the forgotten generation by history. And so as I say, statistically it's quite interesting and, and uh, where the money's gone over the last 50 years or so. But, but you can't help but read this book, or I, for my money, read this book and thought, well, okay. You're not born in East Africa, are you? You're not in the middle of civil war in Sudan. Actually, the UK is still just the world's sixth largest economy with a credible health service for all, with pretty good education for all. It's not that bad that you should be saying our lives are not worth living just because we were born after 1979. Some good things have happened uh, since then that you could enjoy as well. But it's the... It's the sort of sense of entitlement. But my parents, they retired at 60 with a good pension. And I'll have to retire at 70 or beyond. And goodness knows what I'll have. And it's just not fair. Well, it's just life. Sorry about that. Some do very well, others less so. But it's not that bad, is it? But the sense of expectations that people have. And they never meet them all. So it leads into or feeds into a lack of contentment. Now, flippant example uh, if you have your expectations too high, you will start to do some crazy things. I don't know if anyone read Before Christmas of uh, Rob Tyrrell. He was a 29-year-old man who lives with his parents and uh, was arrested for kidnapping his mother because uh, he held her captive at gunpoint for six hours, demanding that she do his ironing. He, she had said to him, you're 29 years old, probably about time. You stood in your interview. No. So uh, he was arrested and uh, for kidnapping. And his words... In this little article, a snippet I read in the paper, he was outraged that his mother had stopped doing that for him. Now, 
if you have the wrong expectations of life, you'll end up doing slightly odd things. Maybe not that odd, but you'll lack contentment. Your sense of entitlement will screw you up a little bit. What we need is contentment. So essentially what we're going to say over the next month in different ways is the problem why generally perhaps we're lacking contentment is that people expect too much from this world and too little from Jesus Christ. Now it's not the most profound thesis, but that's what we're going to think about for the next month. People expect too much of this world and too little from Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, we're looking then, it's kind of somewhat of an overview of some of the themes. Uh, this uh, very uh, obvious passage to look at in uh, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, the next few weeks we'll focus in a little bit more practically uh, on uh, discrete issues. Um, but what we'll see, I think, over the next month is, there's no handy-dandy toolkit, here you go, take these five steps and you'll be content. Actually, the path to contentment, it's, it's a hard path. <laughs> uh, it's quite radical. It's not easily found. It has to be, in Paul's words, learned, verse 12. I've been greatly helped by rereading uh, this book, a whole book, a 17th century book by a Puritan writer, Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Uh, it is brilliant. I'm probably, it's not everyone's cup of tea. It is written in 17th century language. Um, but it is brilliant if you could work your way through it. But it's an interesting title, isn't it? The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. So everyone should have it. It's meant to be a biblical norm for people. But it is quite rare. It's not that obvious in people's lives. But reading that, um, this may change a little bit. But let me uh, give you a basic definition that we're going to run with. Uh, over the next few weeks. What contentment is, how, how I think you define it biblically, a deep satisfaction in the heart that trusts and delights in God's fatherly care in every circumstance. A deep satisfaction, deep and lasting satisfaction in the heart that trusts, indeed delights, gives thanks for God's fatherly care in every circumstance, whatever happens in your life. Now that is a wonderful thing to have. I don't think I could say with Paul that I have learned it. I'm a learner. <laughs> but that's what we're aiming for. Three things to uh, say tonight. This is not, by any sense, uh, working away. It's not an exposition of Philippians chapter 4. We did work our way through the book a couple of years ago. But um, let me just pull out some themes of uh, this that crop up in this chapter. Contentment, then. It's not from circumstances. It trusts in God's provision. It looks to God's glory. Those are three things we're going to look at this evening. Contentment is not from circumstances. Secondly, it trusts in God's provision. Thirdly, it looks to God's glory. Let's take these in turn then. First up, contentment, it's not from circumstances. So verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
fairly simple, obvious point he's making. If you tie your contentment to your circumstances, it'll go up and down. There are good days, there are bad days. There are good years, there are bad years. In your life, in my life. You know, sometimes life goes well, sometimes it really doesn't. And if your contentment is just tied to how well your life is going, well, it'll be up and down. It'll be superficial. Not, no, no real depth to it. Uh, briefly, the, the, the context of this letter. Uh, Paul is writing the letter uh, uh, of Philippians. He's writing it to Philippi, a church he planted about ten years earlier, roughly. Um, the church is experiencing persecution. They're having a rough time. Paul is writing it from prison. Best understood, he's in prison in Rome, uh, tied up, um, chained up, as he uh, puts it early in the letter. Um, no food, it's not sort of like a modern prison service. Unless someone provides you with something, you would starve. So he's very grateful in this little section that some money has come from the Philippians. He can get some food now. But uh, the church itself, they're having a rough time. Paul, he's in prison on death row. So he's not being glib here. He's not uh, on holiday uh, uh, in wherever, in, uh, in Madeira in the summer, prancing around, drinking his wine, saying, well, I've learned how to be content, and it's very easy, you know. It's not, his life is tough. It's affliction he's going through at the moment. But he's content. Now, how so? Well, we need to unpack this, but I think if you just uh, glance across uh, chapter 3, verse 8, it gives you uh, a good summary of what's going on in his heart. Because Paul can write there, chapter 3, verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I've got Jesus Christ. And compared to having him, a relationship with him, and a righteousness from him, which means I can know God, which means I will be with God for eternity, compared to that, I couldn't care less about the other stuff. I've got Jesus Christ, and I'm content with him. That's what he's saying. Now, how do you know if you're a content person? Well, Paul suggests there are two little tests, or two great tests that life throws up. Uh, verse 11, uh, or oh, sorry, um, verse 12, need and plenty. I know, it's, uh, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. So you think, am I a content person, really? Deep? Well, two little tests to apply to yourself, or when you experience them. When you're in great need or you have great plenty, are you content then? Two little tests to apply. Let's take them in turn. So need, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. Literally, I know what it is to be humbled, to be brought low. So it's not just material. It's, I, know what, I know what it's like when life crushes you. When you're sick. When you lose your job. When you're impoverished. Or you lose your loved ones. I know what that's like. I know what it is to be brought low. And I'm content in those situations. That's challenging, isn't it? It's quite easy to be content when life goes well. But when it goes wrong... Uh, I didn't watch whatever it was, stargazing tonight. Um, one thing I did watch uh, last week, uh, I enjoyed enormously, a documentary on Pixar. 
the uh, the film company who make all the great you know cartoons, Toy Story, Cars, Finding Nemo, Wall-E, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was 25 years of Pixar, and this is a documentary. And uh, I was waiting for my wife, and then I was, oh, this is no shut up. We're watching this. This is brilliant. And uh, and she concurred. The, uh, so we sat and watched this thing, and we were slightly captivated by it. But one of the one of the most interesting parts I found. Toy Story, so the film that kicked it off, that got them going and um, uh, really put them on the map. Uh, initially, Woody, obviously, the main characters, Woody and uh, Buzz Lightyear. Uh, originally, when they first plotted it and started animating it, Woody was a really nasty character. The cow- Woody the cowboy was nasty. And then as the film went on, his experiences turned him into a nice person. So he was a, uh, you know, a bit like Scrooge. Ta-da, lovely person. And uh, that was the film. And so they trialed it, and they ran it by some people, and no one liked it. No one liked Woody. He was just too unlikable. So, oh, you know, back to the drawing board, or computer, as it is, the, um, and uh, off they went again. So they redid him as he appears in the film. And if you can remember the film, of course you can. Uh, if you can remember the film, at the beginning, Woody is delightful. So he's the top toy, he's you know, the, the most loved toy in Andy's bedroom, but he's incredibly kind, he looks after the other toys, he's, uh, he's considerate, he's lovely, he's delightful. And what a lovely man Woody is. But Buzz comes along, of course, and uh, he becomes the favourite toy. And so what does Woody do? He rages. He tries to assassinate Buzz Lightyear by shoving him out of the window into uh, Spike's garden. And uh, all of a sudden, everyone loved Woody. And uh, when they, they showed this, people loved it and emotionally really bought into the film and to the character. And really, the, uh, the guy talking about this, this head animator, said, well, we realized that's just what humans are like. That's every man. When life goes well, very easy to be benevolent. Are you content, Woody? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so content and I love people and I'm kind and I'm considerate. What happens when life goes well? I just, I'm selfish. I'm a different person. Sorry, when life goes badly, I'm a different person. Different person when it goes wrong. That's everyone. That's what happens. Very easy to be, oh, you, you content with a job that's going really well, with relationships that are great, in affluence that you content. Well done you. I'm good, good. What happens when life goes wrong? That's Paul's challenge. That's one of the tests. Now, the second is plenty. It's less obvious as a test. But the issue is, I guess, is no matter how much people have, we always want a little bit more. A little bit more. So the test is, if you've got plenty, do you still want more? And the answer is for most of us, of course. Of course, there's always more. Life is good. Let's be honest, my life is good. But if I just had whatever it was, if I just had, I don't know, a hundred pounds per month more in the pay packet, if I was just one rung higher, if I uh, just had a few more friends, if I just had whatever, if I just had a, a quality relationship, if I just had a spouse, a different spouse, if I just had, if I just, just change one thing, not a big thing, I'm not asking for a huge amount, just one thing to change, then, then I'd be content. No. Really? Oh, the truth is life might be a little bit easier if you had the one thing you desired. I presume you could say to Paul, Paul, are you content in prison? Yes. Would you prefer to be out of prison? Uh, yes. Yes, I would. Life would be easier. But 
I know that contentment isn't tied to where I am. If I'm chained, if I'm free, that will not affect my contentment. Of course, life will be easier. That's neither here nor there. But it doesn't affect his contentment. But of course, naturally, instinctively, we all think just the one thing, or just those couple of things, if I could just take those two things out of my life, or just bring those two things into my life, then, then it would all be well. It's just a lie. Uh, think of it this way. Imagine you are on the way home, uh, you met a man, and uh, you are talking to the man, and uh, he said, oh, I'm so hungry. I have such a longing for food. My stomach is empty, and I need food. <gasps> okay, what are you? What am I doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm going to fill my stomach with air. If I could just get more air into my stomach, then I'll be satisfied. Then my stomach will be full. Depends how well you know this man, or how how strident you're feeling. You'd probably say. No, my friend. No, you weirdo. <laughs> no, what you need is food in your stomach. Air will not do it. You can suck in as much air as you want. That will not take away your hunger. Oh, you don't want to be talking about. I just need more air. If I can just get enough in. <laughs> and he just keeps on sucking and sucking and sucking. And you, you look at him and you think, well, you're mad. It's not air, it's food you need what we're like. Paul would say, what are you doing? What are you doing just thinking if I could just have that thing? If I could just add that into my life? If I could just have one or two things more, then I'd be satisfied. What are you doing? You're sucking in air. It's Jesus Christ you need. Contentment is found in cherishing him. You think you'll just gain it by changing one or two things in your life? Well, if you think you find yourself, you're just sucking in air. That will not feed you. It will not satisfy you. It's not meant to do that. Even though air is generally a very useful thing, and I encourage you to breathe it regularly, it won't satisfy your need for food. It will not. It won't do that. Yet modern culture insists the way to be satisfied is more. More. Nicer flat. Nicer family. Nicer friends. New car, new career, new catering standards. Just change something and then, then I'll be content. No. Contentment is not from circumstances. It's found in cherishing Jesus Christ. I, uh, uh, this was a magazine, uh, Sunday Times magazine from a couple, uh, just before Christmas. You won't be able to see it, which is probably good because it's an unhelpful cover, but why are men so unhappy? Why are men so unhappy? Don't shout out your answers. But why are men so unhappy? And um, the whole magazine is about that. But it starts off uh, with uh, these well, what is it, six guys. Why it's tough being a man today, or why it's tough being a guy. They're expected to be breadwinners and nurturers, strong but sensitive, ambitious yet attentive. No wonder in the midst of an identity crisis. Let's start our 35-page uh, um, special on why men are gloomy. Oof. That, was <laughs> that was depressing. Let's start our special... Asking six men why they're not happy. And you don't need to read the article. The, the headlines above all their heads tell you uh, all you need to know. <laughs> the loner who wants to fall in love. The drifter who longs for a proper job. The lawyer who quit. The husband who earns less than his wife. 
the stockbroker turned stay-at-home dad, the reluctantly single man. But basically, the thing is, they all think, if I could change one thing, one thing, then I'd be happy. Don't need to change everything. If I could just change one thing in my life, then I'd be content. And the irony is, two of them have done it. There's the lawyer who quit and uh, sets up his own company. And he's miserable. And then there's the stockbroker turned stay-at-home dad. Yeah, I used to earn a fortune. My bonus was magnificent. But I realized they weren't making me happy. So I spent more time with my children. Because it worked. No, I'm really lonely. I don't like it. It's quite hard work being a stay-at-home dad. They, two of them have changed the thing. And they're still unhappy. So don't, don't believe the lie. Contentment doesn't come from just changing one or two things in life. It does not. It might make life easier. But contentment is not from circumstances. They'll come, they'll go. Don't make that mistake. It's not from circumstances. Okay, let's push on. Second thing. Contentment, then, trusts in God's provision. Trusts in God's provision. Now, remember how we defined it uh, from, the, from the beginning. Contentment is a deep satisfaction in the heart that trusts and delights in God's fatherly care in every circumstance. Trusting that God will provide, is in control. Or as Paul puts it, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now please read that in context. He's not saying, I can do anything. I can turn a metal into gold. I can leap over tall buildings in a single bound just because through God. No, no, no. I can be content in any situation through him who gives me strength. That's the point of it in context. I can be content in each and every situation. So Paul can say, right now, I would rather not be in prison. So in chapter 1, I would rather be with you Philippians, teaching you, encouraging you. That's where I'd rather be. But God has put me here. He is my father. I trust him. I'm content. Trusting in God's fatherly care. And what's this? Is that if you take away nothing else, take this away, uh, please, tonight. It is impossible to know deep and lasting contentment in your heart unless you trust in God's fatherly care over your life. You say that again. It is impossible to know deep and lasting contentment in your heart, whatever circumstances may bring, unless you trust in God's fatherly care over your life. Over your life. Not that just generally God is in control in some uh, undefined way. Over your life. You. You. It's impossible to be content. Now let me just give a, a, a word of caution and a Perhaps a word of action on this. A word of caution. I just want to make sure I'm not misunderstood here. This is not to ignore frustrations or afflictions or do nothing about them. So a deep trust in God's fatherly care over your life does not mean you're just passive in all things. So a small example. Uh, in December, I, uh, I got myself into a, a little bout of insomnia. 
So over a period of a couple of weeks, I'd wake at 3 o'clock, 3 a.m. every day, and that was it. Didn't matter what time I went to bed, 3 a.m., wake up, and that was it. Now, after a few days and into a couple of weeks, that gets you down. And uh, you go and see the GP who helpfully says, well, you know, the human body really only needs five hours sleep a night. Yeah, it's not that nice, is it, though? Um, uh, it, it gets you down. Now, what did I do in that? So, at the beginning, I sort of prayed. Lord, why are you doing this? Well, I, I don't, you know, I, obviously I'm stressed or there's something going on that's making me do this. I don't understand it, but you have purposes. Uh, help me not to waste this time. And we do read useful things to pray to you. Okay. Um, and then I sort of, after a few nights, you just drift into sort of self-pity. Oh, I did. Uh, and it was less productive. Now, it's good to pray, and that's the right thing to do. Of course, at the same time, I did go to the GP and say, look, you know, I'm into this. Can you, can you help? And he said, yes, of course. Uh, you need some time off. And uh, here's some sleeping tablets. Take them just for a few nights. They'll reboot your body, and uh, you'll get out of this cycle, and off you go again. And so he did, very helpful, and uh, got me up and running again. So, what's it, to, to learn contentment in that situation, it's not to be passive. I mean, do what you can to get out of your predicament, whatever it may be, whatever you feel your affliction is. But fundamentally, it's still to trust. It's trusting God and activity. But don't be passive in it. God wants you to act, whatever you're situation may be. Now, that's a word of caution. I don't want to be misunderstood on that. But then a word of action, practically, what should you do when affliction comes? Let's put it this way. When something is there in your life and it is getting you down over a short period of time or over a prolonged period of time, over a period of years, what do you do with your affliction? Let me say it quickly and then I'll come back. I'm sure there are better ways of putting it, but um, what should you do? One, acknowledge it. Two, cry out to God. Three, ask, how do I serve you in this situation? Four, do what you can to practically get out of your affliction. Five, give thanks. Let me try and work through them a little bit. Let me give a practical example. You may, you're made redundant. What should you do? One, you acknowledge this is hard. That is emotionally hard. And the longer it goes on, Practical hardships to that. It's no good denying that. Two, cry out to God. God, this hurts. I don't like this. That's okay. Don't complain to him, but acknowledge that to him. Go to God. Three, now how do I serve you in this? How do I make the, the, what do I do with this? What do I learn from this? Spiritually. How can I make the best use of my time now? Actually, unemployment is, is, is a good one. You can help other people in a way you may not have been able to before. You may be able to be a great blessing to other people. Four, do what you can practically. Apply for new jobs, etc., etc. Take advice from others. Five, give thanks. That's hard. It's hard to say, Lord God, I, I can't, I cannot see why you're doing this to me now, but I know you are good. I know you are good. I know you are Father over my life, if you're a Christian. And therefore, I can thank you for what you're doing in me, even though I don't enjoy it at all. 
walk your way through those things. You are my Father. You act for my good. So you can never be content unless you're trusting in God's fatherly care over your life. You cannot. You can't. But once you know that he's acting for your good, it does transform. It doesn't remove affliction. It does transform it. You have to believe, verse 19, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches. What you need, don't confuse needs with desires. Those are two different things. Don't say, I have a mortgage of £3,000 that needs paying every month. God will provide my needs. Well, your need might be to sell your house and live in a flat on someone's floor for a few months. You know, your need is to be housed. So don't confuse those two. Comfort, that's not a necessity, biblically. Comfort is not a necessity that the Bible would lead us to expect discomfort in a fallen world. Don't be surprised at that. But trust him in it. I was enormously encouraged by a a mother in the morning congregation who uh, is pregnant uh, halfway through, and it's going slightly wrong. And certainly the baby will be born prematurely and uh, may not survive. I was enormously encouraged by her and her husband's response, which was, well, this has happened to other people. Why shouldn't it happen to me? I'm not immune from disaster in this world. And God knows what he's doing. And if the baby needs to survive, he'll survive. Otherwise... He'll give us what we need. I'm enormously encouraged to hear them say that. God will provide what you need, not desires necessarily. But contentment trusts in that. It trusts in God's provision, his fatherly care. Third, lastly, uh, more briefly, uh, contentment then, it looks to God's glory. Very simply, verse 20 Here's what drives Paul. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's what I live for. God's glory. Or as he puts it at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, uh, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm here on this planet to serve Jesus Christ. If I die, brilliant, I go to be with him. And that's what I'm about. Uh, he's a pretty single-minded uh, character here. So God, you know, he's basically saying, God doesn't need me. If I die, so what? So what? It's God's glory that matters. God has provided for my greatest need. Jesus Christ has died for me. I'll go to be with him in eternity. And if God says, you know what, Paul, I've had enough with you. I don't need you anymore. That's all right. Who cares? I go to be with him. What matters about that? God's glory. That's what matters. Life may be hard here and now. God doesn't promise a comfortable life. He does not. He doesn't promise ease. He promises that he is caring for you. And live for you his, and then live for his glory. Live for him. How do you do that? Imagine, you know, the, um, uh, imagine a soldier is uh, off uh, fighting a war. It's a just war. Let's not get drawn in. It's a just war that everyone agrees with and is wholeheartedly behind uh, the soldier and his nation. 
Now, how does the soldier keep going in the war zone when he's sleeping rough on the floor and he's being shelled at night and he's woken up in the night by gunfire and the ground shakes 10 metres from where he is and if he'd slept over there, he'd be dead. But fortunately, he said, how, do, how does he keep going in that situation without just saying, you know what, stuff it, I'm out of here. How does he keep going? There's a whole number of things. But there's at least the two. One, that's not home. He knows he's there for six months on a tour of duty, and then he'll be back home with his family and his children, etc., whatever it may be. It's not home. You can endure all sorts of things for a while. It's not home. And why else does he stick it out? Because he thinks it's the right thing to do. Because it's not all about him. It's about the purpose he's serving. He's fighting for a greater cause. He's fighting for a just reason. Now, this life, for us, sometimes, how do you keep going when it's hard? Not when you're in plenty, when you're in need. How do you keep going? It's not home. This world is not home. I mean, most here are young. I spent most of Christmas with uh, two relatives, 92 and 93. You have a different perspective age, 92 and 93. So, you know, career doesn't matter that much when you're 92 and 93. You haven't had one for 30 years. It's less exciting. You have a different perspective. But, but they're going home. That's, that's what they care about. You can endure all sorts of things if you know it's, you're going home soon. We can endure all sorts of things in this world. Because it's not home. For the believer, they're going home. And also because you have a greater thing to live for. You live for God's glory. That's worth living for. And sometimes we just need reminding, actually, you know what? God is a father who cares for us intimately, personally. It's not all about me. God didn't make the world for me. He loves me. I'll go to be with him. But actually, he says, while you're here, you have work to do. And whatever situation I put you in, in need, in, uh, in plenty, get on with it. Serve me. You can serve me whatever scenario you're in. Live for my glory. And contentment looks to God's glory. It has a greater purpose than just looking in. So there we go. That's easy, isn't it? Contentment. All, all there next week? All of time, of course not. It has to be learned. It's hard. It's fairly radical. It takes time. Contentment is not from our circumstances. They'll ebb and flow. It does trust in God's provision. Desperately need to believe that God is a father working for good in your life. And it comes from looking to his glory, knowing that there's a greater purpose to serve than just, just self. But to get there, it's quite hard work. It's hard work. No doubt about that. It'll be painful to learn this. I probably, I don't know how many of you are bothered to go and see the, the most recent Narnia film, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It may be, maybe something that you adore and go to see. Maybe something you don't do unless you've got children. Um, but the film, it's okay. It's alright as a film. It's changed quite a lot from the book. And, uh, the, uh, one bit, which is really annoying, they change. The, um, one of the characters in it, Eustace, is obnoxious. 
if you've read the book, you may remember this. If you've seen the film, Eustace Scrub, it's a great name, isn't it? You know he's going to be nasty. Eustace is obnoxious, um, and uh, uh, he's dragged into the world of Narnia, and halfway through is turned into a dragon, as you do. Um, and he's desperate to change. He's in real pain. He's got this gold armband on that he can't get off. He's in real pain. And he meets Aslan, who's meant to represent Jesus Christ. And he says, Aslan, I'm desperate to change. Desperate to change. And so he says, well, try then. And so Eustace tries to, like a snake, rip his skin off. And hopefully that if he rips off his dragon skin, he'll be a boy underneath. So he rips the skin off. But underneath, he's a dragon again. So he has another go. And he rips the skin off. And he's getting smaller, but he's still a dragon. And he has a third go, and he rips the skin off. And he's still a dragon. And eventually he says, can you do this for me? And uh, this is where the film gets it all wrong. But in the book it's very beautiful. Because it describes it deeply how Aslan comes and puts his claws into Eustace. And it hurts. And as he rips the skin off, his claws go in more deeply than Eustace could ever go. And it's painful. And every piece of dragon skin that is torn away it hurts. There's pain. But at the end of it, of course, the dragon has gone and he's back to being Eustace again. And what is Lewis's point? His point is, you can't change yourself. Jesus Christ can change you. He'll transform you. But it hurts. It's not an easy path. Contentment has to be learned. You have to go through plenty and need. But he'll change you. He'll get you there if you trust in him. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we've covered a huge amount of ground, really, starting to unpack this topic. And if nothing else, we're starting to recognize that it's not easy to learn contentment. But Father, we, we long to do so if we're in our right minds. We long for a deep satisfaction in the heart that trusts and delights in your fatherly care, regardless of our circumstances. So would you move us in that way so that we begin to say more honestly, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Amen.